So I'm Haven. I'm from Fish Welfare Initiative. My co-founder is Tom, sitting amongst you. It will come as little surprise to most of you that fish suffer enormously in aquaculture or in fish farms. Causes of suffering include bad water quality, bad stocking densities, disease and parasites, and an inability to express their natural behaviors, amongst other issues. Slaughter, which normally takes place via asphyxiation, is invariably long and cruel. And this is to say nothing of the various welfare and conservation issues associated with wild-caught fishing. And all this takes place on a mind-boggling scale. According to Sentience Institute, an estimated 111 billion fish are alive in aquaculture at any given point. To put this into perspective, Sentience Institute estimates um, roughly 31 billion farmed land animals are alive at any given point. So this is suffering on a scale that we humans cannot fully comprehend. And with this in mind, we started Fish Welfare Initiative. Our main goal is to reduce fish suffering as much as possible, and we're open to a variety of ways of doing that. Our plan comes in two stages, research and implementation. Currently, we are in the research stage, and we will be for another uh, six months or so. For this, we are answering four main questions, because unfortunately, it is the case that with fish, we do not know how best to help them right now. One, which species should we focus on? Two, which country should we work in? Three, which approach should we take? Should we target farmers or producers or even governments? And four, and perhaps most importantly, which welfare improvement should we advocate for? By welfare improvement, we mean something like better water quality or better slaughter methods, something analogous to the cage-free welfare improvement that's been made already for so many chickens. Now, if you went to Carolina's talk earlier today, you'll know that all this research doesn't help anyone until it's implemented. That's why the second and main stage of Fish Welfare Initiative is the implementation of a pilot program based off of our findings. Now, since this is all a little abstract, I'd like to walk through one example of what this could look like. Taiwan farms a massive amount of fish. In fact, it's one of the top producing countries globally for fish aquaculture. And furthermore, its government is actually amenable to working with foreign NGOs. So we could work in Taiwan. There, we could work with tilapia, both because tilapia is one of the most numerous farm species in Taiwan, and because tilapia are very resilient to dying, suggesting that farmers would not have a great deal of incentive to optimize for welfare, because the fish will probably survive long enough to be slaughtered for meat, regardless of how they are treated during their lives. And with tilapia, we could work with farmers to implement aerators. These are relatively simple machines that mix up the water and improve water quality by improving oxygen levels in the water, thus hopefully reducing fish suffering. Now, of course, the work in any foreign culture, it's imperative to have people on the ground who understand the culture and the language, which is why we'll be hiring people who know those things better than we ever will. Now, this is just one example of something we could work on. Our hypothesis is that a single-issue focused charity can work in the animal space. This could be proven wrong, or we could fail to have impact in one way or another, in which case um, we'll scale down or shut down. Here, we'll be able to write you all a real nice forum post, how not to advocate for fish. Or we could be proven right. We could scale up and have a massive impact, improving the lives of millions or even billions of fish. This will tell everyone that such a charity can work in the animal space. Perhaps some of you have heard of the Against Malaria Foundation. It's a charity hyper-focused on one extremely important issue, providing anti-malarial bed nets to people who need them most. It's arguably the most effective charity out there in the global poverty space. Imagine if we could run the same sort of highly scalable, very reliable model for animals. So how can you help? 
Well, if you have experience in biology or fish aquaculture, then you should consider applying for our research analyst job. We're putting that out in the next few days, and we're looking to increase the amount of welfare science that is currently on our team. Uh, if you're interested in just keeping in touch and learning about more of what we do, you should check out our website, or you can email me or Tom there. Now, on with this. At the end of the day, we hope that our biggest impact comes from the expansion of humanity's moral circles to include all sentient life. And we thank you for being part of a movement to do so. Okay, hi, I'm Lauren, and I am the founder of Animal Advocacy Careers. And uh, it is our mission to help more uh, compassionate and talented people into the animal advocacy movement. So why is this important? Uh, so as you can see, uh, this is uh, some animal charity evaluator research. And uh, this is the number of animals, uh, farmed animals, which are used and killed um, in the world. And uh, this is the amount of money which is actually donated to them. So this tiny little blue box is the amount of money which is actually donated to the farmed animal cause. Uh, so this in itself is a really neglected area and gives a compelling argument as to why you should donate to those charities. Um, but one of the uh, issues that these charities are so suffering with most at the moment is that they don't have enough highly uh, talented individuals working in their organizations. Um, so this is, a, this is a massive problem in the movement, and it's one that I'm, um, I'm willing to take on and hope for more people will help me with that. Um, so where does it come from? Um, another reason as to why this might be the case is that um, that tiny little green part there is the amount of money which a percentage of the resources which is actually spent on capacity building so a lot of these organizations aren't actually focused on uh, trying to increase the number of people who are coming into their organizations they're more focused on direct impact um, we can really understand that when you see the size of the problem they're actually facing um, but the problem is that it, it kind of leaves them in this position where they just don't have enough people working in this organizations uh, so how does that actually impact the animal advocacy movement. So for the first start, it means that organizations, these great organizations, don't grow as quickly as they could do. Uh, so they're international companies, but they're not able to scale up in new areas because they lack talent. So it's not they're not directed because of the size or the scale of the problem. It's more about the available talent which they have. Uh, the second part is that they are then forced to actually um, recruit from an area which is a, a restricted talent pool. And this leads to two further inefficiencies. Uh, firstly, it means that these people um, are less likely to be able to take on more senior positions and they have to invest more uh, money in actually training them. And it also just means that they're not able to, to have like a, an individual who could actually help their organization grow faster. Um, and then thirdly, it actually leads to a really high turnover rate. So uh, this is another massive problem in the animal movement at the moment, uh, that there is a high turnover rate in these organizations. Um, and a lot of it is to do with the fact that there isn't enough um, there isn't enough skilled people who are in the management positions. And it also it, it's, it's, it's just a really big problem. And uh, lastly, it's a, an individual issue because it, it, um, it affects a lot of people at an individual level. There's a lot of people who are frustrated. They can't get into the animal movement. Um, and that's because they don't know how their skills can actually be beneficial to the movement. Uh, so that's where we come in. Since starting the organization so far, we've conducted initial research into looking at what skills are the most needed to help the animal movement grow for the next five years. Um, so this is so that we can then identify the skills that the animal advocacy movements need. And then we are going to work on solutions to try and help um, people gain those skills. 
Um, so some of the areas that we want to look into is how can individuals actually have the most impact in animal advocacy movements. Um, some topics may be things like how many animals can you actually help through changing your career? Uh, what careers actually have the most impact in animal advocacy so that people are actually able to make more informed decisions about how they can make a difference to the animal advocacy movement. Um, and then from there, we're going to be looking into possible solutions. So we understand the size of the problem. Uh, we are understanding now what skills are most needed in these animal organizations. And the next is to looking into solutions. Um, so we're going to look into all of the possible solutions that we might be able to use to actually get people into these animal organizations and then systematically trial which ones are the most cost effective and, uh, and, and help people from there. Um, so we'll also be trying to help these individuals get into the animal advocacy movements and um, finally I would just like to encourage everyone to never stop learning and to carry on improving themselves and working for what they believe in. Thank you. Hi um, I'm Caleb and I'm excited to introduce the charity that I'm founding Good Policies. So yeah as we said before Give Good Policies is looking to improve public health policy in low and middle income countries to bring impact at scale. So we believe that an effective uh, intervention could be advocating for particularly cost-effective and evidence-based policies, and this has the potential to help millions of people. So currently, I, I'd like to introduce our current focus, which is tobacco control. Currently, over 7 million, yeah, over 7 million lives are lost annually to tobacco. It is linked to all four of the most common non-communicable diseases, and people are often killed at the peak of their wage-earning capacity, which robs families of their breadwinners and contributes to the cycles of poverty that exist in many countries. In fact, this is the greatest single source of preventable death and disease which is around today. It's difficult, it's difficult to deny that this is an important issue, but we believe this is also ne neglected, as there are many countries which, have, which still have an extremely high smoking prevalence, and without any existing advocacy effort in many of these countries, it's unlikely to change anytime soon. Fortunately, there's a range of evidence-based policies that are extremely effective in reducing tobacco consumption. The most effective of these is increasing the price of tobacco products via taxation. A 10% increase in price is, shows, is shown to dec decrease consumption by around 5%. And not only this, this is an extremely large evidence base with, only a, with over 100 studies demonstrating that tobacco excise taxes are a powerful tool for reducing tobacco use. Currently, our organization has three core functions. The first is to identify policy windows which we think have a particularly high, um, particularly high cost effectiveness. The second is to fund additional campaigns that we think were otherwise unlikely to be started through local NGOs. And through conversations with these project partners, um, they've identified barriers in, in addition to funding which prevent them from running effective campaigns. And we're looking to provide this technical assistance and are building this internal capacity through conversation with the wider tobacco control community. For our pilot, we've identified Mongolia as a promising country. This is for three main reasons. Mongolia has a parliamentary election coming up in 2020, and historically they've been particularly amenable to policy changes of this nature. Um, it also has an extremely high smoking prevalence, uh, particularly for Central Asia. And historically, it has been neglected by the tobacco control community. And we, we are unaware of any organizations currently um, dedicated to tobacco taxation, although we have identified one fantastic NGO um, who's willing to partner with us on this. 
Um, currently, we're looking for um, seed funding, but also advice, particularly on the advocacy um, process, and we're keen to get as wide a picture of this as possible. I'm also um, looking for uh, a co-founder and a research, analyst, a research analyst hire. I'd like to take this opportunity to quickly thank these fantastic organizations that have helped me develop this strategy. Uh, and if you, like them, are excited about the potential impact we could have, I'd love for you to reach out to me, uh, hello at goodpolicy.org, or I'm contactable over the Hoover app. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Michael Plant. I'm the founder and director of the Happy Lives Institute. And I'm Claire Donaldson. I'm the COO of the Happy Lives Institute. Okay, so uh, here's a familiar problem. On the latest estimates, for $5,000, you could expect to save one life. You could double 10 people's income for a year through unconditional cash transfers, or you could treat 50 people for depression using interpersonal group therapy. And uh, the question is, which of these does the most good? Obviously, what we want to do is to improve people's lives by as much as possible to maximize well-being. But the challenge, as uh, Alice Redfern raised this morning, is um, how do we work out how to do this? And as she pointed out, the current method is we use our intuitions. We just weigh up, you know, what's the value of doubling someone's income? What's the value of, uh, of treating them for depression? And we just, make, we just make sort of hypothetical judgments. And the concern is, how good are these judgments? I'm going to suggest not nearly as good as we would like. So if you ask people to choose between two health states, between moderate anxiety or depression, or some, um, some, some mobility issues, as in, as in walking with a cane, when you ask people how much of their life they'd be prepared to trade off not to have these conditions, they say they're about as bad. So they'd be prepared to trade off 15% of their life. What you can also do is you can ask people about their subjective well-being, their self-reported happiness and life satisfaction. And when we do this, we find that moderate anxiety or depression is associated with a 10 times greater loss in life satisfaction than some mobility issues. So there's a big difference between what people expect affects their well-being and then what does when you ask them about it. So this is why at the Happy Lives Institute, we want to use, uh, we want to do cause prioritization in terms of subjective well-being. We want to use self-reports of happiness and life satisfaction to work out what the world's most pressing problems are. Uh, the graph on the, on the left indicates a number of research articles in this field. So this has really exploded recently. Um, as academics have realized that, in fact, uh, subjective well-being is more measurable than ever. The measures are valid, reliable, and rigorous. And our, um, this also has been sort of in part driven by a growth um, in amongst policymakers in wanting to find a better measure of social progress than GDP. And we think SWB, subjective well-being, is a promising way to go, and we're following, we're following the work in policy in advocating this and trying to bring it to effective altruism. Okay, so where does HLI fit into all of this? Um, well, as Michael just said, policymakers and academics are starting to use, well, are using subjective well-being data. Um, but nobody is using this um, in effective altruism. So there's currently no overlap between these two research fields. And that's the gap we plan to bridge at HLI. By combining these two fields, uh, we hope we can uh, figure out effective ways to use our resources to improve global well-being. Uh, there are two broad streams to our research agenda, theoretical and applied. So to give you a feel for the theoretical research, this is how, whether, and when we should use subjective well-being in our analysis. So as an example of a question we think is really important, um, how do we compare subjective well-being scores between people in different contexts? So thinking back to the, the example Michael already mentioned, 
Um, can we compare, compare the subjective well-being changes of people who've received uh, cash transfers in Kenya with people who've received interpersonal group therapy in Uganda? And some work has been done on this already, but we want to do um, some further work here. For our applied research, uh, this is figuring out what are the most pressing problems uh, if we want to improve global well-being and what are the most effective ways to do that. So we're looking at these four main areas um, that we think this, this looks like. Uh, as an example, at the moment, we're trying to find the most cost-effective interventions um, in mental health in a developing country context. So that's the kind of project that this might look like. So just to wrap up, I just want to remind you what this is all about. Um, we think everyone here in this room cares about happiness, and that sounds maybe a little bit obvious, but I think it's actually quite easy to forget that we all care about well-being. Um, and we think we have this really exciting method uh, using subjective well-being that means we can work on something we all agree is really important. So we hope at HLI, uh, by measuring what really matters, we can shift the approaches of NGOs, governments, and individuals so that they can more effectively improve how people's lives go for them around the world today. If you're excited by our mission, uh, we're trying, currently advertising for researchers. Uh, we're also looking for funders and advisors, so do get in touch if you'd like to get involved. Thanks a lot for listening. Some, I have something to tell this room that may or may not shock you. Uh, getting government to change policy is really, really hard. Um, so when Michael and I were looking at this intervention, we thought it was going to be difficult, but uh, we really didn't know how difficult it was going to be. But we still believe that no matter how difficult ta tobacco taxation is, the high-risk, high-reward piece of it is well worth it. So I won't go into too much detail because my colleague Caleb, Caleb has already mentioned uh, a bit about tobacco taxation. It's the biggest preventable killer worldwide. But there is a piece I want to hone in on that wasn't talked about. Um, and one of the reasons that we're really excited is because of the kind of flow-through effects that you get with taxation. So when you talk about tobacco and preventable disease, you have to consider the cost, not just to the end user in terms of their life, but when you're talking about a health system, that health system is also paying for catastrophic um, catastrophic incidences when someone gets cancer, for instance. But when you talk about taxation, not only does the health burden now go down, uh, which means that the government has to pay less money for total health care costs, it also means that they have an additional revenue stream that they can use for excellent policies. And we think that that additional revenue stream paired with this intervention means that it's going to be one of the most cost-effective that there is. And despite how effective this intervention is, it's relatively neglected. So when we came into this, we were part of the charity entrepreneurship program, as you know, and we've been working for about the last two months on this. And um, we basically started with building a very basic model, uh, analyzing about 40 variables ranging from uh, the rate of tobacco use in a country to the level of corruption, rule of law, that sort of thing. Um, and what we found was that basically... There are a lot of countries where this issue is pretty dang neglected. So what we're doing now is essentially building a model that's much more robust and looking at how can we analyze where we should be working and where other people in the policy space in this area should be looking um, to do interventions. So as Caleb mentioned, uh, 
you of course have to do things that bring it over the line. And so we're working to analyze where change is going to happen across the world. And we're really excited about this because we think that tobacco tax has been repeatedly neglected, but also because when we build a model that we that helps us understand how policy change occurs across the world, we plan to disseminate that information across the EA community because we believe that there's so much good that can be done with effective policies that we want to share that information as widely as we can. So who are we? Uh, I'm Joel. Uh, I'm originally an entrepreneur from the U.S., if you haven't figured out from my accent. Um, originally, I was working at some uh, at Gigster, which was a YC and back company, and then moved to Europe to work for Rocket Internet, and then most recently was working for the government of Estonia on one of their digital projects where I managed uh, business development as well as relationships with the United Nations. Um, and then Michael uh, was originally over at uh, UBS and Goldman, and then moved full-time to Effective Altruism Causes and was working um, on the EA Hub in Lean. So we feel that kind of paired, we have the EA sensibilities as well as the government and kind of startup background to see if we can get something done here. Um, and then how you can help. Well, really, there's two critical components. Uh, charity entrepreneurship has been amazing in their initial support and helping us kind of see this idea. But as we know, making change happen in legislation is really, really difficult. So we're raising a little bit of extra money to make sure that we have enough runway to get through uh, basically until the next uh, tranche where we decide whether to scale up the intervention or whether to pare it back or kind of switch to something else. And then, of course, feedback and advice. If you are uh, in this space or have kind of experience in the policy area, we would love to hear from you. So thank you so much. Hi. Um, I want to share with you one of my favorite books in the world. To be honest, it is not a page turner. In fact, the details are quite dull and boring. Yet, I highly recommend this book to everyone. This red book is a lifesaver. The NHS, that's the National Health Service, gave it to us when our two boys were born in this country. Every child born in the UK gets one of these. It's a great nudge. The reason why it's great is because it's a great red reminder of all the upcoming medical appointments for a newborn baby. At a time in my life when I was exhausted, distracted, overwhelmed, this book helped me keep track of one of the most cost-effective, evidence-based, life-saving interventions out there. Vaccines. The WHO, that's the World Health Organization, estimates that vaccines save two to three million lives every year. Yet, one child under the age of five dies every minute of vaccine-preventable diseases. That's one child every minute. We at Suvita want to change that. Globally, the WHO estimates that 19 million children have not received their basic vac vaccinations by the time of their first birthdays. Half of these children are in India. That's 10 million children in one country who have not received their basic vaccinations yet. So you might be wondering why we're going on about the benefits of small nudges like the Red Book on the one hand, when the problem still exists at such a large scale on the other. Can a simple nudge really be the solution? Evidence from India suggests that the answer is yes. 
At Suvita, we're proposing a simple community-led nudge to address the immunization gap. It was recently tested in a large-scale randomized controlled trial by senior economists at JPAL, including Duflo and Banerjee, who won the Nobel Prize earlier this week for their work. They identified an exciting communication intervention, which causes a significant increase in the number of parents bringing their children for key vaccination appointments. Gossip. The researchers identified the gossips in town by asking a number of randomly selected households if there was an event going on in the village, who would be spreading information about it? Who would you be hearing from? The most commonly nominated gossips were then asked if they'd like to volunteer as immunization ambassadors within their community. If they agreed, they were kept up to date with details of local immunization camps, which they were then free to spread with other members of the community as they saw fit. This program is highly effective. In fact, as a result of this intervention, we know that there was a 22% increase in parents taking their children to get them immunized. In addition, we know it's quite cost-effective as well. In fact, we believe it could be one of the most cost-effective global health interventions out there based on benefits achieved per dollar spent. The Haryana state government is currently exploring uh, with our MIT researchers uh, on scaling this intervention within the, the state of Haryana. At the same time, despite these uh, extraordinary results, we are not aware of any other state government or charity looking to scale this. That's where Suvita comes in. We plan to roll this intervention out in additional states in the country of India. We will harness the power of nudges to ensure no child misses out on the benefits of immunization. So we're particularly excited about this opportunity because we now have the chance to build upon a large-scale, rigorously conducted randomized controlled trial, which was carried out in the country in which we plan to work and builds on an existing evidence base. We recently traveled to India to meet with a number of relevant stakeholders and to learn about their work in this space to ensure that we will complement rather than duplicate existing actors. We're more than happy to discuss the details of our plans for next steps in research, fundraising, partnerships and operationalization. So please do reach out to us if you're interested in hearing more. Through using an evidence-based, cost-effective and impact-focused approach, our mission is to ensure that in future, the five needless child deaths that happened while we've been talking will be a thing of the past. Thank you. Thank you.